Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, September 6th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is September 11th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and today for our friend Charles Willard, Minnesota, of course, that's 5.30 a.m. Our little team's working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C. It puts us on the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, and we hope the discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share and encourage and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, Florida. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Willard, Maple Grove, Minnesota. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our leadoff person this week is Bill Hull. He's going to read the scripture and uh, guide us with a few formative questions. Hello, Bill. What's the good news? Ah, the good news is we're all together. (laughs) Good to see each other on the screen. And we welcome, of course, those who listen and view uh, later. Last Sunday, I led the study of the Gospel of John in the adult faith formation, and I began by telling them my energy for the Gospel of John, my favorite of the four Gospels, all being important. And I will tell you that this, what we're about to read and reflect on, is one of my favorite uh, chapters in Luke. I think it is so powerful. So, uh, and I know it's meaningful to all of us, so I welcome the energy we bring to this. Our passage for this week, based on the lectionary, is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And in a moment, in introducing the questions, I will briefly comment on the rest of the chapter. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thanks be to God. Reflected, yes, in the New Revised Standard Version. We will listen. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one 
sinner who repents. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Now, Luke 15 has three stories of being lost, sheep, coin, and the so-called prodigal son. And our lectionary includes only the first two. Um, However, uh, to be faithful to Luke's narrative, um, we have all three in mind as we focus on the first two. Um, it is inst- it's been instructive to me to read and reflect on these stories in the light of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 and following, where the prophet proclaims judgment against the shepherds of Israel who have failed, he says, to feed, strengthen, heal, bind up, and bring back those that strayed. So Jesus' parable is grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures. Then the prophet says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, rescue them, gather them, feed them. Thus, this week's passage is yet another example of Luke's presenting God as one who goes to the outcast, the lost, the sick, and cares for them, the prodigal son, the ten lepers, the tax collectors, and others. Interestingly, there is a brief parallel in chapter Matthew 18, verses 10 and following, but only the shepherd, uh, not, not the other two. And interestingly, in Matthew's account, what follows is his instructions about how to deal with uh, conflict with a fellow believer, a biblical one step at a time. If someone has wronged you, you talk to them one-on-one, then with a few witnesses, that that whole uh, narrative about how to deal with conflict in the church. Um, And to be, again, to be faithful to Luke's narrative, we consider all three parables, even though the lectionary omits the lost son. Verse, uh, <laughs> question one, Don, I'll come to you in a moment. Verse one tells us that tax collectors and sinners wanted to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes were grumbling about Jesus. What do you infer or make of the contrasting of these two groups by Luke. Don? I'm excited by the word contrast. Thank you. And forgive me, Charles Willard. You know, we're dealing with an English translation here, but I couldn't stop thinking about contrast, which in its root, contrast RA, is um, about contesting. Like it's, and I think that's interesting. You know, you set this, you set these things up (laughs) so that you can contest a similarity or a sameness, which I think is at the spirit of what's going on here. All these things add up, again, in the English. Uh, he welcomes them in the big, the big conjunction and, and eats with them. Not only can we cr- contrast you know, us and them, uh, that type thing, uh, in terms of welcoming them, but how dare you? You eat with them. It's even more intimate. But I wanted to go to the contesting, that you can't go through an exercise in contrasting without really thinking about how do you contest whether something's the same or not. So if I were leading a class, I think I'd go down that road just to open up discussion 
And one way to look at it in terms of contrasting, there are three parts of contrasting. One is you try to find something that's strikingly different, a true ju juxtaposition. And we look at, at this group, uh, we have this broad stereotypical like you know, tax collectors, and everybody gets lumped into that. And I, I think this passage says strikingly different. The answer is no. Uh, this, is, this is the full passage about individuals, all individuals. So the answer of contrasting us and them, groups and other groups, in this case, I think the answer in this gospel is no. No, not lumping people together in that way. The second is degrees of difference. And, and I think in this case, the answer is also no. There's no gray area here. If you really go through the passage, this is going to be my position as we go through this discussion. All are lost and the pen is empty. If one sheep's gone in the story, but the pen is empty. So degrees of difference, no. On an individual basis, it's all about the diversity of each individual, no. And then finally, I think for uh, contrasting, there's the, the comp comparison. You know, are there similar objects? that we can look, put down on a piece of paper or put on a table and see if they have anything that's dissimilar. And in this case, I think the answer in this piece of the gospel is yes. Differentiated, individuals, individual walks, individual centers, yes. And Jesus eats with all of them despite their dissimilarity. So for strikingly different, uh, no. We have a lot in common. For degrees of difference, no degrees allowed about the individual. If the pen is empty. And in terms of the comparison, yes, we're dealing with an individualized, a coin, a sheep. All are different, but in the sense we're all the same as well. So I, uh, that's the way I would look at it if I were uh, leading a class. I, pr I, I appreciate the, uh, the word uh, contrasting, uh, uh, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Sarah? Okay, so both are lost. I'll go with Don's thinking here. Yep, we're pretty much all the same. Um, what's interesting to me is the sinners and tax collectors are in full awareness of what is lost. <laughs> they're, they're desperate and hungry for it. The grumbling group, however... Um, seems to have crafted an enterprise and built a financial model on gaining upon those that are lost. And, and, the, and the lostness of, of the other group. Um, so the grumbling group stands with confidence that they are different. The lost um, are immune. They, they built this whole model on um, how they are different, um, how they're different from the lost, and they are, in their own thinking, immune to the need of being found. Um, so while the grumbling group has perceived being found as a threat, the sinners and tax collectors welcome the act of being found as life-saving. To me, that's interesting. Um, interesting that the systems that support and undermine that support or undermine God's purposes are being restored to wholeness. 
It gives me pause to consider the actions that I take to generate a living and how I care for those around me. Um, Do I navigate with smugness of not being lost, or do I recognize with humility that I have chased that which gives only death again, only to awaken in a self-imposed darkness? So it's the question of a recognition of need versus um, a sense of self independence or um, a self-sustaining model and are we able to continue without God or are we only successful because of God so that's kind of where I landed thank you Sarah and I appreciate the drama going on around you (laughs) somebody is seeking your attention Charles no I have no contribution all right. Um, I, I'm asking, uh, how do we compare and contrast these two groups, the tax collectors and sinners who wanted to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling? And I, I think I'm echoing what's already been said, that we, at least our tendency, and I think with some accuracy, is to see the tax collectors and sinners who are at least in the eyes of the writer of this gospel and likely the eyes of people there, they were the outsiders. They, they religiously, they were the lost. And the Pharisees and scribes see themselves as those who were in. Now, I'm influenced by some other studies I've been doing where scholars have cautioned us not to overdo the rigidity of the Pharisees and scribes and to remember that they were students of Scripture. They are people of faith. Um, They appear to feel threatened or uncomfortable. We're not told what they felt. We're just told that they were grumbling. But these are people who in their own eyes are deeply committed people of faith. It matters to them what God's word and law says, and we need to avoid demonizing them. And it strikes me that it can be a reminder that sincerity and having boundaries, both of which are good qualities, can lead us to missing or dismissing persons who are in need or lost or whatever word you want to Use so a, a word of caution uh, to myself. Now, also in her comments on this, Caroline Lewis reminds us that it's not just these two groups that are being compared and contrasted. God is being a part of this comparing and contrasting, and she says the thoroughness of the searches. And the extravagance of the celebrations intimate that there might be more to the lost sheep and more to the lost coin than a first glance assumes. Uh, These stories elicit, she says, rather interesting adjectives when it comes to God. Elicit, in other words, she's adding her adjectives that I'll read in a minute. Perhaps ones we do not use as often as we should or desire. The adjectives she infers that apply to God is relentless, stubborn, insistent, tireless. 
And my final comment, it wasn't until my study this week that a phrase early on caught my attention. When Jesus first responds to the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes, and he's introducing this story of the shepherd, he says, which one of you? Now, I may be making too much of something, but he doesn't begin by saying, well, now there's a shepherd off out here, and you're not literally. A... He says, which one of us? And to me, Jesus is appealing to what I believe is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. I truly believe that in every human being, there is something of God that is there. And by that, I mean the capacity for awareness the capacity to see beyond myself, the capacity to care uh, and to, uh, in some way, identify with others. Now, society and personal histories uh, fracture that, but I'm mulling over that introduction. Which one of you? Jesus is appealing to all of us and something within us that that would be congruent with the persistence of the shepherd. Okay, Um, question two, and thank you for those responses. Uh, And Charles, heads up, I'm going to come to you first in a moment. In the two parables in this week's passage, Jesus offers a parallel pattern, a man and a woman, and acknowledging the third story, uh, a father, 100 sheep, 10 coins, and one lost son. Um, There's searching and finding, calling others to celebrate the finding, occasioning a joyous celebration. How does this multiple storytelling enhance Jesus' message? And I might add, particularly as reflected in Luke. So how how do the if I may say this, the literary dynamics, the multiple images enhance Luke's story. Charles? I'm not sure that I have a good contribution to make. I mean, it's, it's the, the two parables reflect uh, the same kind of response. um, And the, From the woman, I mean, and from the the, the shepherd, uh, two different sides. Uh, so, from a literary point of view, from a presentation point of view, uh, it gets both 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 circumstances set up um, by a man and a woman, uh, a shepherd and a, a woman with uh, a lost coin. So, it's it's a good it's a good there's a good parallel. They reinforce each other uh, in terms of the way it's that, that, that runs along. Okay, thank you. That That's helpful. Sarah? This dual storytelling model makes me wonder about those that search to find what is and who is lost. Um it makes me ask, what kind of, what part does God play in these stories? And what role am I asked to play? Am I a lost coin or a lost sheep? 
Um, is God the seeker of all things lost? Or am I like the sorcerer's apprentice <laughs> in bungling the task at hand and somehow the result is someone else being harmed as the result? Um, the implication here is the shepherd lost the sheep. It, it's the woman who lost the coin. These, these objects didn't lose themselves. They were lost by the person who was entrusted to care for them. So there's this interesting dynamic. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of Dear Working Preacher, um, the uh, essay that was posted by Christopher Fan Kaufman's um, this week and entitled The Parable of Lost Chickens. Um, I, I commend it to you, but the implication here is that it changes the urgency of the story if the seeker of the thing that is lost is somehow um, the one that, that is at fault in, in the losing of the thing. Um, and, and I don't know that the, the parable of the lost son falls into this pattern or not. Um, but the implication here is that um, coming full circle into the awareness is like coming back to myself, which is similar to the parable of the lost son. Um, and there's joy over each and every lost thing that is found. And I think that shared joy is, is part of the, the gift of this story or this, this story series um, that we have. Um, so... I can participate in the search and the resulting joy, or I can decline participating in the celebration, which we see in the story of the parable of the lost son acted out so well by the brother. Regardless, I am still sought after and found by God, which I think is the beauty of all three of these stories. The resources that the woman uses to, to find her last coin are probably more expensive to her than the lost coin itself. So it talks about extravagance. It talks about um, the, the, the length to which we are um, held with dearness to God if we see all these stories as, as a reveal of how God would react or how God reacts to um, those that are, are, are standing on the outside and not included. Um, the idea of something being lost and someone being lost. So I, I'm falling into the camp of shared joy. I'm falling into the camp of I, it could be self-inflicted lostness. It could be my negligence that's put the, the particular lost thing in its place. Um, Regardless, I'm sought after and I'm found. Thank you, Sarah. Don. Thank you. That's exciting, Sarah. Thank you. I have to separate what I'm going to say from what Sarah said, but I, I affirm what Sarah was saying, but I have to put that aside to do this. And I, I think the duality, the juxtaposition, encourage us to understand the mind of the creator or you can almost substitute the word creator with the pursuer and that there's something that we can hear but it has to be almost set apart that the work of the pursuer is set apart from all of the things because frankly i'm not going to pursue a dime i'm not going to pursue a quarter and i think there are your points like the things i might not pursue because i don't know the value so i've got three things that i think 
is meant to reveal the mind of God, the, the mind of the pursuer. The first is desire, the second is focus, and the third is the work or the mission. On desire, uh, and again, for the, the mind of the pursuer, uh, is the desire to recover a value, but it's an unknown value. If I'm pursued, I actually don't know my own value. Who am I? And I'm thinking about the prodigal in the pig pen. Who, who am I that has gone to such a low point? But I think there's a, the lack of understanding is what makes the pursuer set apart. That there's a, we can understand the pursuer's desire, but maybe I'm confronted with the fact that each individual, and I think each individual in the stories are being pursued, every one of them, and that these parables say to everybody engaged, every listener, think about valuation and desire. The desire is there, the intent there, but you may not really know. And we're encouraged to think about how do you discover value and that the creator already knows what's being pursued. The second is focus. And I want to compare that, Sarah, you talk about chickens, to imprints. You know how chicks imprint to the, the hen. And I think the, I'm going to say the imprint is the, pursue, the pursuer has the imprint of us. And that's, for me, a revelation that I don't know. I, I cannot understand really what the pursuit is other than I'm pursued. But the imprint of me is in the mind of the pursuer or the mind of creator. And I want to, the example I think I'm, I'm called to, to lay out today is if I am pursuing something, if I have desire and I know there's value and I'm going to focus, and the pursuer is just focus, 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 focus. The creator is focus, focus. If I lose something, even like a set of keys or something like that, they're not going to be where they belong, right? And I don't know where they are. So I have to do an imprint. I have to draw an imprint. What will the keys look like if they're where they don't belong? Because I can't find them unless I imagine what they would look like stuck in the side of the sofa or on the floor or on the street. I can't just go out and start looking for keys. I have to imagine the key in a different place, and there's an imprint on me. In other words, I'm acting out the mind of the creator, the pursuer. The creator has the imprint. The creator ha- knows where I may be, though I may not understand it at all. So that's desire and focus, which is part of the imprint. And then finally, the work and the mission, which is this, you know, this deliberate, deliberate pace and pursuit all the way through the mission, 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 and Bill and these, the duality reminds me that I really can't understand because there are things I don't pursue that may have value that are not revealed to me, that the creator has all those things. So that's what the, the dual approach does for me. And I, I know it's overused, and I'll say to listeners, I know some of you can't stand this point, <laughs> and, I, and I get it, but I, I want to read the first, path, the first lines of uh, Francis Thompson's 130-year-old uh, hound of heaven, you know, which really is, you know, the, about the pursuit uh, and, and maybe the not knowing. Uh, so I'm just going to read the first lines, and many of you know this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him under running laughter. I visited hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears for those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with a hurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, 
deliberate speed, majestic instancy. They beat, a voice beat, more instant than the feet. And that's the pursuit of the by, being pursued by the hound of heaven. So that was the duality did for me on those kind of three ideas. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Don. And thank you for mentioning that poem. I'm not uh, prepared to be a critic of poetry. I will tell you, in my ministry, from time to time, there were people, especially those who were really hurting, who found that poem to be very powerfully impactful uh, for them. So (laughs) whether one considers it good poetry or not, it, it speaks to people. It continues to. And that whole imagery of God <laughs> as a hound, <laughs> I, I find that both profound and, and moving. Um, the parallel patterns, uh, 100, 10, 1, uh, uh, obviously there's a full range here. Animal, inanimate object, a person. Now, let me assure my colleagues that I listened to them while they're speaking on this podcast, but I, while I was listening to you, I hearkened back to my comment that I think that Jesus saying, which one of you uh, is a suggestion to us that there's something innate. And I remembered an incident I happened to be a party to some years ago. One afternoon, I was in a large department store on the second floor heading from one department to another, which took me through the department where children's clothing was. And the backstory was that this mother and her little girl were there shopping, and the mother became engrossed in looking for an outfit for her daughter. As I'm walking in, all of a sudden the mother calls her daughter's name, can't find her, and yells out, help me find my daughter. And I don't know what the legal requirements are, but the store immediately, a a salesperson got on the phone. They locked the front door. uh, They barred anybody from leaving. Management people came up, and it took about five minutes to find the little girl who was purposely hiding from her mother. What I observed was everybody in there, at least in my field of vision, stopped what they were doing and started helping that mother look for her daughter. There was an instinctual as well as the legal reaction. I will spare you a description of what the mother said once she, her first reaction was absolute joy. And then you can imagine the rest of the story. Anyway, um, it, it reminds me, this, this juxtaposing, the imprint on me is that patience and perseverance led to communal celebration. Uh, with the sheep, it says the shepherd invited friends and neighbors. With the coin, it says the woman invited friends and neighbors. And again, Honoring the third story, the son who comes home, we are told they began to celebrate. We can imagine that wasn't just the immediate family, but this father 
uh, draws others in. And a scholar that I consulted this week pointed me to 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, where Paul describes, if you please, while he doesn't use this word, he describes his journey of being found. And I'll read a few of these verses. I am grateful for Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. Think about that. Blasphemer, persecutor, man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And for that very reason, I received mercy so that Christ Jesus might display the utmost patience as an example of those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. Christ might display the utmost patience. And I stress that because I'm not always (laughs) the most patient person in the world. Now, I will add a comment. In Mark Davis's postings, people post responses. So what I'm about to quote wasn't from Mark Davis, but it, it was a comment elicited by his article on this passage. This common commenter said, we often hear that Jesus hung out with the wrong crowd. But what if we look at it the other way around? The wrong crowd liked to hang around with Jesus. That should give us loads to think about what Jesus was saying to them. And my final comment on this question. Yet again, for me, Luke highlights that God is not only like a shepherd, likely in that culture, as far as I know, only males were shepherds, but God is like a woman. One commentary I read said that that would have been offensive then to compare God to woman. I don't know if that's true. It was certainly a patriarchal society. And it reminds us that Luke 23 ends with the women leaving the tomb, and chapter 4 begins on the first day of the week at early dawn. They came, they clearly referring to the women. They were the first there. And at least it's possible to infer that Luke intentionally uh, uses a woman as one of the illustrations. All right, thank you. Now my third question. Pastor Donald McKim had a discussion of these parables with a seminary student from another culture. The student, and I'm quoting his article, pointed out that when reading these parables, North American culture tends to focus attention on the single lost sheep or coin. The joy comes when it is found. The student said that his culture finds joy in the corporate dimension of the story and the fact that the community can now be complete. This quote comes from 
a publication of the John Knox Press entitled Connections. Have you experienced communal celebration of repentance and being found? How might we enhance this experience in our community and worship lives today? Um, Caroline Lewis reminds us that the repentance, recovery, restoration, renewal of someone leads to a communal response. Jesus tells often the healed person to go to the priest to present themselves. And we've mentioned this before, that the healing wasn't all there was to it. Often in that culture, there was an alienation from one's community so that it is communal. Now, I acknowledge the risk or that it may be a bit problematic to compare the scriptures to modern day experiences. But yet again, I will reference the privilege over a number of years of working supportively with people in 12-step recovery programs. And probably many of us know this. I, I don't know an organization that's better at communal acknowledgement and celebration of repentance than the 12-step community. As you may know, each step is celebrated with a token, 30 days, 60. Uh, and often in my ministry, uh, if someone were in line to get a token for one year or five or whatever, they would call me as their pastor and ask me to be there to celebrate with them. And in that context, there would be an acknowledgement of where the person had been and where they are now. Now, I've realized it is very challenging to translate that into public worship. But as I thought about this, I think there's an opportunity there. I don't know how to do it. At least, <laughs> prepare yourself, Don. I'm mulling <laughs> how how we might um, more powerfully uh, acknowledge the gift of repentance. And I say that because I think in some way we are all the lost. Um, I, I look at today's culture and this nation. I think many of us, if not all of us, are the scribes and Pharisees. For, and I'm not going to get into partisan politics, but we are a divided nation, and each camp thinks it's right and tends to demean the other. I dread the upcoming political ad season. It's already started. Utter demeaning. How seldom a candidate says, this is who I am and this is my dream and vision. Instead, it's demeaning others. And I think all of us participate in that. And yet, Jesus patiently seeks until the lost are found. Okay, Charles. Pass. Okay, Sarah. Well, it seems to me that we celebrate being found. Um, 
through a shared joy and gratitude, a recognition of, of the missing piece and the welcoming back of the whole when the missing piece is found. I see this at weddings. I see this at births when we celebrate births and baptisms. I even see this in the celebrations of life when we um, that we have for those that we've encountered with love. It seems like their joy when I'm able to confess that I need help from other people and I, I accomplish or resolve the problem when I have help. So it's almost as if the vulnerability of asking for help to the joy of accomplishment in the task. Um, so I, I kind of am, am thoughtful about that, that there are gifts, of, gifts to or for vulnerability that only come with shared joy, that, that that's the direct result or the, the outcome. So I like those ideas. Thank you, Sarah. Don, for your comments, and then I'll wrap up. Great. Thanks. Uh, I think you're asking about personal experience of this. I, I think that these passages are simple, and that's why I think we're drawn to come up with simple examples ourselves to do this. And I, I got an outreach from someone I care about very much. I haven't seen for decades and decades, and we've been invited to go and spend time with them at a one of their homes and uh, and some old friends who I haven't seen for 30 years, if not more, will be there. Uh, I can only imagine how wonderful it will be. But I kind of know. I can only imagine what it will be like to dine and to talk or to walk on the beach. But I'm not sure. But I have got great confidence in the great celebration and reunion that it will have. I'm looking through the glass darkly what it would be like. But I know I'm so excited. I'm so confident. I'm so happy. It frames frames my life for the next six weeks until I get there. And it's so simple. It's so simple. And I think there are parts of this that are like that. I'm being pursued by a happiness in the future. I'm being pursued by that every day. I think about it all the time. And and that's simple. And I think that's how we can, I believe in this passage, understand the mind of the creator, the mind of the pursuer. I'm pursued by that happy thought as we go forward. You were asking about, you know, all through there we're talking about, I think you talked about a cultural difference of looking build between the, the individual versus the corporate. And I just say they're both, and we're, there's this tension that we have. I think that's why Jesus keeps telling the stories, to see the tension between the individual. This is an individual coin and an individual sheep. I think to me it means all of us are being pursued individually in our own unique, diverse way and in our sameness that we have with each other that we can be together. Uh, and then when it comes to the corporate celebration, we have a glimpse of it. We have a glimpse on earth of what it's like. We have a glimpse. It's tangible. I can smell it. I can touch it. I can see it. Next week, the prodigal in the pig pen, I think he smells home. There's a sense of what that might be like. He smells it. He's not there. He's not there. But it's real. If he goes and starts walking there, it's there. He doesn't know exactly what the reading is going to be like. So I think, I think the answer to this is it's both. Uh, and if you just jump to the corporate and the happiness, which sometimes I think I would do, it's like, you know, there's the great feast. <laughs> like, well, with the story matters, being pursued matters, telling the story matters, living matters, being lost and found matters, talking about the imprint that maybe you're imprinted on the creator, that matters. So we have to tell the story too. Don't, 
There's nothing in Luke about cutting to the chase, is there? All the journey and the mission and all the touch and all the things that are happening. So we have to tell the story, too. Well, thank you. And uh, I see we are out of time. Just looking for glances. And if there's any follow-up, we're good. We're good. All right, folks. Palmasia Presbyterian Church is located at 3501 San Jose Street That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Always commend that to you because at that site, great sermons, discussions, disagreements, faith, prayers, outstanding music, opportunities to participate in communion. So check it out. That church, that congregation makes it possible for the four of us to have this conversation and for us to welcome you. And I'll say because of comments we've had wherever you are in the world when you're listening to this, you are welcome. And you are always welcome. And we'll see you next time.